The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. Now, okay. We are live. Great. It is Sunday, April 5th, 5 o'clock. Boris Johnson is in the hospital. Uh, There are uh, uh, 4,000 people on ventilators in New York City alone. We're not allowed to have fun anymore. But in lieu of fun, Kate and I have mystery guests. Kate, uh, will uh, uh, will you please... Uh, introduce your mystery guest. Yes, um, I'm thrilled um, to bring um, Scott Shapiro. Um, He is a professor of law at Yale Law School, um, a philosopher, um, an all-around good guy, and the author of a book that was really helpful to me this last year called Legality, and which he has a really great podcast about. Uh, And and like, which you should totally listen to. He is a rising star in the Twitterverse uh, and has been by, I think our previous guest, hold on, let's see. Our previous guest, um, what did Oren Kerr say about you? Oren Kerr said that he was, God, I wish that my internet was working. Um, Apparent, oh yes. Here it is. Oren Kerr has described him as bad for Yale and bad for America. So thank you for being <laughs> with us today, Scott. Um, <laughs> sorry, go can ahead, you, Scott. Can you guys hear me? We hear you just fine. Okay, Great. that's good. I, I just, I just, I just felt uh, that um, there were so many um, on uh, people on people on Twitter that were cool that had insults uh, thrown at them, and then I. I crowd I crowdsourced who could insult me the best and Oren won. So. Well, that okay. is excellent. Oren uh, 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 wins many competitions <laughs> involving wit. Um, so let me introduce my um, uh, mystery guest. My mystery guest is also a professor, though not of law, professor of international relations at uh, the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Uh, he is also, uh, uh, in my opinion, the author of the most uh, amusingly important Twitter feed in the history of Twitter, uh, or Twitter thread in the history of Twitter, uh, which is, I believe, the only Twitter thread in history to um, uh, become an academic press book, uh, the toddler-in-chief thread. Uh, please uh, welcome to In Lieu of Fun, Dan Dresner, who should turn on his camera. Thank you, Dan. There you go. There could we you, go. Yeah, did no, you no, hear I, any of that? I did, I did. Uh, okay. Happy to see all of you. I apologize, I don't have the funky backgrounds that you do. I tried doing that and it, it looks really bad. I think my uh, my computer must be old or something. But You know, I actually think you should go with the pretense that that is your funky background and that <laughs> you have like a cool funky background that has a stuffed animal and a slanted bookcase. 
I, I have both of these things. It also, you know, I, it, this is no stuff. This is no ordinary stuffed animal. This is Bloom County's Opus, which, you know, I've had for decades and, and has followed me wherever I go. So, uh, uh, but happy to be here. Uh, and yes, I have the distinction of, of turning the first Twitter thread into a book, I suppose, which is, is a dubious distinction at best, but you know, I'm, I'm sure Oren Kerr can come up with something nasty to say about that, I, I, which would no, actually be just, quite witty. <laughs> not just a Twitter thread, it's not just a book, right. it's a book published by the University of Chicago Press. I mean, <laughs> like if there were- It got through uh, peer review. Right, if there were it, a Nobel Prize- I don't there know, were a Nobel Man, Prize, I don't know that that's like really like in its favor. Like I think <laughs> with the success on Twitter, <laughs> well, I like to think of it as multitasking. It's simultaneously success on Twitter, plus the book got through peer review, and there's an article version of it that got published in International Affairs, which is a decent IR journal run by Chatham House, also through peer review. So this thing got peer reviewed twice. You know, the, if you had told me five years ago, you know, Dresner, you're going to have something published in which you basically argue that the president of the United States acts like a two-year-old and it'll get through peer review. I don't think I would believe that. <laughs> yeah, now it doesn't even sound like- Now it's like, I mean, yeah, shrug your shoulders are like really brave right, move, like, Dresner. Uh, really like, of course yeah. it got through peer review. Exactly, yes, yes. Uh, um, but But the fact that it happened is still kind of, you know, sort of astonishing. Okay, well, I just tweeted out the live YouTube link. So retweet and do whatever and tagged oh. you guys in the, um, tagged you guys as guests uh, because someone has to keep this thing running while, yeah, while so, you all are like having fun. In so, the, fun. Um, so the rules, oh, sorry, sorry, go ahead, Kate. No, no, I'm done. That was it. I was just yelling at you. The rules of this, <laughs> uh, the rules of this show are that all the planning for the show is done on the show. Um, that we, uh, uh, we, it is a So it's a normal academic conference is what you're saying. Okay. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's a combination it. of, an, okay. of improv and, uh, and a cocktail party and Wikipedia in the sense that if we think something's interesting, we just kind of go off in that direction. And, you know, if we need to grab somebody from the audience to have a conversation with, we just do it. So speaking of which, to the, to the live audience on Zoom, if you want to get in on the conversation mm -hmm. and you are not a psychotic Zoom bomber, feel free to leave one and not, when I say one, I really mean not 200 um, <laughs> questions in the Q&A box. And if we determine that you are a real person, we will bring you onto the show to ask your question. And if you ask 200 times for pussy, please, and you misspell please every single time. Where <laughs> the hell did that come we, from? We are not going, came from yesterday when it oh, happened. Okay. 200. It was, it, was a it was a dark day. I'm not going to lie. It was um, like, we shut, we like, we like dismissed, I think 750 like repetitive requests for pussy and the <laughs> like over yeah, and over again like it was it was it was pretty dark so okay. anyway let's let's get started um, i've never been more frightened in my life let's go <laughs> <laughs> yeah the thing is is you're not going to see any of these just ben and i will deal with them quietly yes. on our own it just distracts <laughs> us from having good conversation also scott i have to say that when you first showed up and your head was just like literally your neck Sticking up like 
yes, exactly. I was like, it was, I kind of, that was kind of great. But, no, okay, but I do appreciate your shoulders. By the way, the I, only I was thing just... it lacked was a hand kind of holding your hair <laughs> so that it really looked severed. By the way, it just, I just want you to know, I will do anything for a laugh. So if you, if you want me to <laughs> like, uh, do uh, do anything, I will do it. I would just say, but before we start, I just want to say, I had such an embarrassing interaction with Dan like three and a half years ago. Oh, you guys know each other? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> Tell. Yeah, this is why we do these things. Okay. This is amazing. Like, the, the, the hope is that someday in Mystery Guest, we'll get a couple who like used to be married or something. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, so, so what happened was, I, I, I when when I first joined Twitter, like in the uh, like um, the middle of 2016. Um, of course, I I, I followed Dan because he's got such an amazing uh, feed, and um, I I just I don't think I really quite understood <laughs> what Twitter was because um, I had this weird sense that he was kind of talking to me, or he knew that I, of my existence, even though I had three followers. And so I saw him, I, I was at a conference at Princeton and so, uh, and he was to a bit of a different conference and I saw him come out of the elevator and I ran up to him and I said, Dan, it's Scott Shapiro. And he just looked at me like I was like, uh, like I, just like a lunatic of which I was. And I just, I couldn't believe that he didn't know me, one of his 800 million followers. And he was just, <laughs> It was very, he was very gracious about it, um, but it was a, it was a kind of an introduction to this this bizarre online world where we're talking to people but we're not talking to people. So I anyway. feel like this is such a great moment of like norms developing around the internet and translating into, and then when I say that, I mean social norms. Scott, I've, you, as you taught me, <laughs> that like social norms developing around the internet and then translating into real life. So when I was at AALS this year, there are a lot of people that came up and like introduced themselves to me. And I have had, I've never met this person for three or four <laughs> years. I've been having conversations with them over the internet. And like, I just was, you just kind of roll with it and you're like, oh yeah, I know you from Twitter. That's like <laughs> literally like you just, you just say it. You're like, oh Yeah. Oh yeah, Twitter. Oh yeah, Popat. Oh yeah. Like, <laughs> you're like, oh yeah, Southpaw. Like I got it. Like I mean, I just it's just kind of one of these things. Right. Scott, right. Do you I, have I, any do you have any recollection of this interaction? I have zero recollection. <laughs> so no, no, but I, I am I, I'm extremely grateful that Scott told this story and it doesn't end with me sounding like a total douchebag. I, I know you were you were very gracious as 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 you always are on Twitter, oh, as far as I can, I, I can tell. Oh, but that's was... definitely not true, but thank you. I appreciate that. Well, I, just, so... I got blocked this morning, actually, by someone. So, you know, it happens, but... Uh, um, yeah, well, I... I, it's it's me reading um, too much Adrian Vermeule, maybe. <laughs> oh, yeah. You've been talking about that all day, Scott. Who is yeah. this guy? Who's Adrian? Oh, oh. Wait, oh I don't know. What are, what are the rules here? <laughs> <laughs> Like the what rule, are like the rules like, are remember that the you rules are I'm drinking right now. You are live on YouTube, and beyond that, there are no rules. I mean, okay. you do you do what you you're accountable for whatever you say. But, um, is, but there are no young, sorry. Go uh, ahead, there, Ben. But there are no like this is a live interaction. 
and uh, and you know don't do anything you wouldn't do on a stage uh, and assume that everybody will uh, be able to see what you're uh, ultimately what you say. And remember, this okay. will live forever. Yeah, that is also true. That's a key. Right. Point. Okay. So, um, but that being said, please keep in mind that I'm asking this question. I've like, I remember I've like, so remember when you tweeted Scott, like of like things that you always look up. And then I gave you like a 40 item list of like <laughs> terms that were like, of like things that you always have to look up. Cause you can't remember what they mean. And it was like hermeneutics and federalism <laughs> and like all right. of these various things. Um, Adrian Vermeule's on that list for me. Um, okay. also like, yeah. I just can, I remember I've looked him up at some point and like, I can never remember who he is exactly. Okay. Uh, I, 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 right. So I, for, for, for me, by the way, it's polynomial. I know. I, just, I can't, I, for the life of me, I can't remember what a polynomial is. You, you understand is. that like the answer to polynomial is like in the word, it means many number. Like it means. Okay. So, okay. So yeah, I, I. I guess I wanted something a little bit more specific, but anyway, so Adrian uh, is a law professor at Harvard Law School, um, and he does constitutional theory, and he's, he's, a, he's, a, he's a really smart, interesting, prolific um, constitutional theorist, administrative law um, uh, scholar, and, but he is also, um, well, it's, it's not, see, he Super has Catholic. A, yeah, yes, he's a, he's a, he's kind of like a modern day Carl Schmidt. Um, in in being a Catholic, being on the right, um, with a, uh, his views about um, uh, um, the role of the executive, he is not a Nazi. Um, Carl Schmidt, of course, was a Nazi for three years. Um, I mean, it's like saying he was, he was just a Nazi for three years. But um, I mean, he was actually- he, Who among us though, if you think about it? I mean, right, really. I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah. that was, and that's one of those- It's really a sliding scale, Those are the things that, um, uh, that live forever too, that you joined the Nazi party. I mean, he, he was actually, he never left the Nazi party, but he was, a, he was an outspoken Nazi from 1933 and 1936. Um, but anyway, so- so Adrian um, has uh, has on his Twitter feed, and I don't, I've never followed him um, because I feel like he purposely tries to troll liberals. And I you feel that way. I, I think it's just an objective <laughs> fact that right, Adrian, okay. and it's not just liberals. I mean, he he actively trolls people like me um, in a in a very aggressive. I way. I have um, a question. Sorry. Yeah. And this is a legit question. I, I Adrian has been on and off Twitter. Is he back on again? Because like there was a period where he yeah. went off or then no. like changed his name or what, you know, is no, he currently think, back on Twitter? No, I think he um, deleted his account after the camps, after he made a joke about um, sending conservatives to the camps, ah, okay. um, which, which was, um, which uh, upset a lot of people for, 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 can't reason. imagine why, yeah. Right, but but by the way, when I say liberal, I mean his sense of liberal, of which you count, um, uh, meaning somebody who really has this view that the uh, kind of believes in the rule of law and uh, has a view about the neutrality of legal institutions and um, uh, you know, kind it's of small L liberal. 
yes, yeah, small, exactly, small L liberal. Um, and he wrote an article in the Atlantic called Common Good Constitutionalism, in which he argued that originalism has played its role uh, on the right of ensuring that um, basically got a 5-4 majority, but now that the conservatives have a majority, it's time to you know, take off the mask and to try to um, uh, um, well, I, I'm trying to put it in the in the fairest way possible. Well, the, the, <laughs> create the a good society, Scott. I don't understand right, right. why you're so opposed to this. Right, right, right. So the, the idea should be to pursue the common good. Where and when you started listing out what the common good was, it sounded. If you knew his other work, it sounded kind of like what has happened in Hungary. Um, with Orban. Um, now, of course, he didn't say that, but based on the other things that he's written, um, it, you know, if you knew the context, you would realize that it would be a Supreme Court that really took authority very seriously. There would be um, the trade-offs between liberty and authority would be heavily, would be more weighted in terms of authority. There would be um, respect for tradition. Um, and so a lot of the kind of things that um, uh, he has been arguing for um, that would be um, um, uh, something that um, liberals would find uh, very upsetting. And of course, the, 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 the social media went crazy. Um, and uh, he then, uh, just to make a long story short, he then uh, wrote a blog piece um, for Mirror of Justice, which is this Catholic blog piece where he said it was all just a joke. Um, um, that uh, was, what he said was, yeah, what he said was that um, they published the wrong version of his piece. That's a huge um, deal. Yeah, but then he wrote at the bottom saying it's a satire. So huh. yeah, so I, I, what I had said um, on Twitter was that he's, in, he's kind of inaugurated what I call post-irony jurisprudence, <laughs> where you're never quite sure, is he joking? Is he serious? How serious so it's an, is he? I, I hate to say this, because I don't think, I would not normally lump Adrian in with this category, but it almost sounds like an alt-right trope, where essentially you say the thing that you're, that you potentially mean, but then you back off by saying, oh, but actually I'm saying it from an ironic distance, so therefore I don't really mean it. Yeah, I, you know, I like, this is the thing is it's very hard. So this is what I said um, in that um, tweet and various tweets, which is that, that I kind of tire of it. Mm. I tire of trying to guess what does he think? What doesn't he think? And it, it, it feels almost like Trump. That is like when you try to try to figure out what 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 game he's playing it's kind of uh you say like well maybe i should think about something else maybe we shouldn't talk about him all the time um again i'm not equating him with trump he's not um donald trump by any means um but it's tiresome um in the way in which i find lots of the um discourse tiresome so i've i've had my various interactions with adrian over the years and and i 
I do think that, first of all, I, I, I'm surprised to hear he's dismissing it as satire because I've always found him, whatever else he may be, completely earnest. Um, and I mean, I once had an interaction with him in which I made the mistake of calling him a conservative and he looked at me very seriously and said, I'm not a conservative, I'm an authoritarian. Um, which took me a little bit aback because I just don't know that many people who use the word authoritarian to refer to themselves. Um, but I, I've always, look, he's, he's extremely bright and he's, um, he's not a, like he's somebody who's done, you know, genuinely interesting work in, in administrative law. And he's kind of developed uh, this, you know, set of this, this body of work with Eric Posner that's quite substantial, that's, you know, uh, and, and actually I think one of the really interesting things right now is how Trump has taken them on very different paths that Eric Posner, like I suppose people like me, you know, have been, you know, forced back into the fact that we are ultimately small L liberals and, people like Adrian and I, you know, Eric Posner and I have many, many things that we differ about, but one of them that we don't is that five years ago, we both would have been called in some sense, at least by lefties, we would have been called conservatives. Now, I never thought of myself as a conservative, but I was thought of by as one by others. And so like this environment has forced people like Eric Posner and, and Adrian Vermeule to go a tectonic level deeper. And, you know, when Eric goes a tectonic level deeper, his essential moral universe is not very different from all of ours. And when Adrian goes a tectonic level deeper, his moral universe is wildly different from all of ours. And he actually means authority and um, and, you know, I, I, I mean, I'm trying to say this without, you know, without being judgmental or, or nasty about it, but he, he actually means the stuff about authority, about, uh, about legislating morality, which is a big component of that article. And, you know, and his, his fundamental beliefs are anti-liberal in a way that I think he's quite proud of. And so the, the part of this episode that surprises me and that was actually, I didn't know until you just said it, is that he's now dismissed the whole thing as satire. No, 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 that, no, just to be clear, just to be clear. He said the satire was that they gave, that they published the wrong version. I see, but I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm like a little bit disappointed to hear that he's running away from it in any way, because, because, I've always thought of him as a pretty is he running away authoritarian. From no, I don't. Th yeah, I don't think he's running away from it. I think he was he was basically what he was trying to say was I, I public the, the version that they published would have been the version that liberals would have signed on to. Um, uh, um, I, I'm, you have to read the blog piece in order to see um, the kind of um, uh, kind of mind games he's trying to play with the reader. Um, uh, but this is kind of what I was saying is like, I'm almost upset that we're sitting here talking about it. I, say, um, I object to drinking alcohol and having to talk about Adrian. Yeah, we can change the topic. We can talk right, about something, we can quick, talk quick. about something funnier.
Like, let me, I, I will close with this, which is the reason I object to this is that in no small part, I've known Adrian personally for more than a decade, for close to 15 years. And it, it's one of the odder aspects of, of this for me in terms of dealing with him, because the truth be told, uh, both he and I were back at the, you know, 20 years ago, we're at the University of Chicago together. Um, you know, I was a junior faculty, he was at the law school. And I was part of a Carl Schmidt reading group with him once back in the day. Uh, yeah, exactly. So- um, That's funny. Yeah, and, and let's just say we had very different takes on Carl Schmidt. I actually teach Carl Schmidt. I teach a course called Classics of International Relations Theory, which is a great books course, make people read the whole book and so on and so forth. Mostly, you know, it starts with Thucydides, goes forward. I actually make everyone read Carl Schmidt um, for that, you know, in some ways uh, that was inspired originally by that. But, but needless to say, I don't take Schmidt nearly as seriously as Adrian does, but the truth is, is that actually our families, when we both moved to the Boston area, uh, you know, uh, got along quite well um, and actually socialized a great deal. We would have them over for dinner and he would have us, over, you know, they would have us over for dinner. His wife is an absolute delight. Um, and about 10 years ago, uh, not on our side, but on theirs, suddenly we just didn't hear from them anymore. They, they kind of went dark. And, you know, we thought it was maybe something we did or something, you know, my family can be, you know, occasionally uh, annoying, um, but it, we weren't the only ones that, that, that this happened to. And so, uh, you know, but, but it, it means that I can't, I never feel right talking about Adrian, uh, his, his political arguments in no small part because, you know, of the personal history and because uh, I honestly don't find it that interesting. Yeah. All right, so, so let's change the subject. Dan Dresner, the floor is yours. What is our next topic? Oh, Christ. I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> Wait, I want to pick. Apparently, there was just an earthquake in California. And also, um, I think um, <laughs> Boris Johnson's in the hospital. And that seems like a good... Okay. Yeah, so I, wait, wait, wait. I actually have a, I have a good question because this is something I'm going to write about for tomorrow. So actually, I'm previewing what the post, my column in the post is going to be about. Um, so I, I, you know, Ben, Scott, I'm assuming both of you are Jewish. Yeah. Before you do, before you say this, if anybody in the audience is in California and just felt that earthquake, uh, flag it on the Q and A and tell us where you are and what you felt, and let's we can bring you into the conversation on the earthquake. If anybody in the audience is working in the hospital where Boris Johnson was just admitted, flag that for us. Tell us about his condition, and we'll bring you into the conversation. But okay, ahead. that last part. Yeah, I'm. 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 I'm not. I was not raised Jewish. I have my my ethnic background. Or okay. my, my my genetic background is Ashkenazi Jew, but that okay, is not fair enough. So so I want a, a quick thing about the earthquake, and then I'll go to the the question I have. The, the earthquake thing is I still remember. I want to say it was about six or seven years ago. There was an earthquake that hit the Northeast, and I remember this because it was one of these bizarre things where it was a ripple quake that I think started in. Um, New York and then radiated up to, to Boston because it was one of those rare things where I saw it on Twitter first and then I felt it when in my office. Oh, um, weird. Yes, exactly. Uh, so it was, it was, that was one of those strange moments where I was like, like everyone on like, you know, on media Twitter that was based in New York was like, wait, was that an earthquake? Was that an earthquake? It was like, oh, something must have happened. And then suddenly about 20 seconds later, I remember being in Medford and like, yeah, that was definitely an earthquake because I, I went to grad school in California. I, I know an earthquake when, it, uh, when, it, when I feel it. Um, so that's always one of the interesting things is that occasionally Twitter moves more quickly 
than than earthquakes. Something to consider. Um, the question I have is is for the the Jews, which is a, this is a post I'm going to write about, I think, for tomorrow. And actually, it came up in a conversation, Ben, with your wife, uh, that you know, during a a virtual cocktail uh, hour that the two of us had, which is. Is it really, is this really the, the, the year we should actually obey the laws of Passover? Um, because, you know, we're now operating in a world, you know, the, the point of the Passover Seder and the point of the holiday is to remember, you know, living in bondage uh, in Egypt and the fact that of what was done to ensure the release of the Jews, namely the 10 plagues. Um, included in those plagues, by the way, are pestilence, which is plague. Um, and locusts, which are apparently really like popular right now in certain parts of Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, and part of the reason that, that Passover is occasionally uh, aggravating for Jews is, of course, is that we can't eat leavened bread. We can't eat uh, things with flour in them or yeast. And the reason for that, of course, is that the story goes that the after the 10 plagues were inflicted upon Egypt, the Pharaoh let the Jews uh, you know, in, uh, start their exodus. Moses, not being a dumb bunny, recognized that the Pharaoh might change his mind, and so therefore told the Jews to get out as soon as possible, uh, which meant that they couldn't bake their bread. They couldn't let their bread rise. And so as a result, they had to leave very quickly. There was poor strategic planning on their part. Uh, there's no other way to put it, and that's what I'm going to say in the, the post. My question is, is that, you know, since we are currently dealing with at least one of these plagues, if not more than one of them, and that, you know, presumably, those people, you know, who actually saw, you know, back in late February or early March what was happening and actually stocked up on non-perishable goods, including things like pasta and otherwise, you know, stuff that would be considered comets in the uh, in the Jewish tradition. Do we have to get rid of those things? Do we have to abstain? Oh, from I those really things? you went you went a different way than I thought you were going to. I thought oh, you were okay. going to say that someone should have sent uh, Moses sourdough starter. I was like, I, just, I actually had this moment of like, does unleavened include yeast and sourdough starter? Like, I actually don't know that. Can you eat sourdough bread guys? You cannot, you cannot, no. you cannot no, no. eat anything I, with oh. flour. You cannot eat, uh, at least for Ashkenazic Jews. Yes. You cannot eat anything Which, with any grain except wheat. And you can only eat wheat in the specific form of matzah, which is um, which is a yes. very which has a very particular uh, cardboard taste to it. Right, strict right. form I, of of unleavened uh, non leavening. Wait, there are very few things that I I I know about. I was an Orthodox Jew for a long time, so I I know I, and I went to yeshiva. I, I know all the rules. I will Which defer to you then. You okay, to? very good. Because I, I was raised conservative, but you know, not Orthodox. So go ahead. Okay, I, I went to Frisch, the same yeshiva, the same uh, as Jared Kushner. Um, uh -huh. uh, we're very, I'm very proud of that. Um, and um, I was a, a, a yeshiva in Israel for a year um, during college. Um, I was I was very I was very uh, devout and and at the time learned. Basically, what happens is with your with your bread your uh, your chametz your leavened stuff. What you do what most people do either they throw it out, but in this case you wouldn't do it. What you do is you sell it to a non-Jew. Right. Right. So you would just sell it to of a non-Jew. Of course, you monetize it. Of course, you do. <laughs> <laughs> 
you, you, well, you, you don't <laughs> want to sell it, it below market price. Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah, Come right. On. You sell, right. You sell it for a peppercorn or something. You yeah. know, you sell it, you sell it for a, very, a roll of toilet it, paper. Right. Right. Well, not that much, but, um, <laughs> but, um, yeah. So, th- so that's paper is gold, Jerry gold. No, but there is this there. I mean, you're, you, you raise a really obviously important point about there's this, you know, there's this sense when you do the 10 plagues during the Seder that you're kind of getting into it. Like it's kind of cool that God smote the Egyptians because they were mean to them. I mean, they weren't just mean to the Jews if- um, They did enslave them, you know. Right, he did enslave them um, for for centuries. Um, But the the sanctions imposed by God would not be considered consistent with the laws of war. Right. No. No. Not at all. Um, um, the um, you know killing the firstborn definitely um, yeah. wouldn't work. Um, also, the biological warfare. But keep going. Right. Yes. Um, but you know, there's a sense of like you know when you when you're going through the plagues, you know, um, I I I I I I'm not sure if we'll have a seder this year because I'm not religious anymore. Um, but if we do, I mean, there's not going to be. I assume most of us are not going to do it with the sense of, uh, you know, relish. I mean, the, w- when we did do it, there are these little toys, like little frogs that you throw around and stuff like that. And it doesn't. The marshmallows. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It does not. It, right. For the hail. It just does not feel. Um, what is like, the thing when you eat the horseradish? That's my favorite part. Ah, that is too. That is the, that is the. Bar I really order. am a savory person, and like Very everyone's good. like, chew on some bitter root, and I'm like, I will bitter eat herbs, that whole thing. Herbs, yes, the whole <laughs> point of the, the so so Scott can correct me, but it's, it's you know my the maror uh, that oh, you eat. Oh, the maror. That's yeah, the name. Called the maror, and oh. the reason you eat it is to remember the bitterness of slavery. Yeah. Yes. Yes, yes. But also, you know, it's very interesting is that what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to invite people over to your house. Oh, that's yeah. true. God, that's yeah. a good point. Yeah, yes. it's, 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 it's a very anti-social distancing um, holiday. Um, it, there's a very big tradition of Jews inviting non-Jews over to- um, Scott, I'm going to cite you when I write this column up. This is an, that's an excellent, <laughs> no, that's an excellent point. I, I, it's absolutely correct, but I'd forgotten about it. That's true. Yeah. So now, like the joke, of course, I mean, if you follow Jewish Twitter, um, uh, you know, people, you know, say, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, only Elijah's coming over um, uh, this this year, uh, the prophet Elijah. Um, but uh, it's, uh, uh, but- and We hope he's it, not infected because yeah. God, the, the R not on Elijah, if he actually is infected would be massive. <laughs> I would just say one thing though, which is very poignant, which is that a big part of the Seder, as you say, next year in Jerusalem. Right. Um, well, and so regardless of your politics, there's that sense of next year, hopefully next year will be liberated. Um, and whatever you're thinking, um, you know, my God, we're hoping next year will be liberated from this bondage of, um, of being not only stuck in our house, but also watching the world uh seem to fall apart and it's just um it's uh no that's i think a really poignant point i love that i actually think that that's i mean easter's coming up which is like the i mean not a coincidence obviously with passover which was what i was raised with but it's not i was never particularly religious i was not raised particularly religious like presbyterian but not like a very small liberal presbyterian church um 
And, uh, yeah, I think that there's, there's like a lot of hope for rebirth that's going to happen with spring and, uh, and with, I mean, across religions and time and history and just kind of like, yeah, I think that exactly what you said, I do want to point out before we kind of move on, uh, that, or actually, or we don't need to move on. We could, should just, Ben, you should just talk about it, which is that Ben wrote this amazing column that is very funny um, for a Jewish newspaper called um, Forward uh, that is basically about the plagues in which he was asked to, I, I don't know how, I don't remember when you were asked to do this, Ben, but like if it was before or after the coronavirus, but you well, were was, asked to like put a happy spin on no, all no, 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 that was things. that was my uh, innovation. So oh, okay, good. Batya Ungar Sargon, the the opinion editor at the Forward, asked me to among among a bunch of other people to write some sort of reflections on plagues, and the reason was that that was I mean it's not just Passover relevant, but it's contemporarily relevant, and so. And when she asked me, I was just sitting outside luxuriating in, in my backyard, you know, drinking some scotch. And I was like, hey, this plague ain't so bad. And so I was, you know, kind of guiltily wrote a piece about the kind of bright side of plagues and tried to look for the upside of each of the 10 plagues. Couldn't find one, as I said yesterday, couldn't find the bright side of life. Oh, but my mother-in-law came up with one for you. Yeah, so, so tell us about your mother-in-law's uh, bright side of lice. My mother-in-law, who is like, uh, who's like, basically just figured out the internet so she can watch in lieu of show, in lieu of fun show. <laughs> like, um, hi, Faye, um, is basically like, was like, oh, I've got a really good upside for like the fun side of lice. She was like, she is a elementary school nurse. And so she is basically, she was like, the upside of lice is that if you show up with it and you're a kid, you just get sent home from school and it's like non-life-threatening yeah. there's nothing bad about it. You just get to go home. And so, like, that is so the end that you get out of school. In At least in the Jewish tradition, the biblical plague of lice was kind of like total body, uh, uh, you know, itching everywhere constantly. So it kind of like eclipses that. But I totally take that in the spirit of the piece that, you know, um, I'm still working on the bright side of locust. I mean, if you eat them, they do have a lot of protein, but I don't really want to read, like, I don't want to really urge people to like eat locusts. Um, so I'm, I'm like still thinking about some of the other plagues that I can't think of uh, and the bright side of. I, I'm almost scared to ask this question, but did you come up with a bright side of the death of the firstborn? I did, yes. And I'm actually really proud of it because it because okay. it came and tell it, this story. So tell it, it came. It like I I was like really stuck on this one. I figured the whole column would not work if I could not come up with the bright side of killing of the firstborn. I mean that and, is the kicker. Yes. Right. It's the last <laughs> plague. I mean, you, like it's a total freaking letdown if you don't right. have one. You so can't I just say up. you can't hand wave away the kicker. I mean that's that's right. the way it works. You know. So yeah. I looked up ancient Egyptian inheritance law, thinking, oh, maybe it's a society based on primogenitor. Most ancient <laughs> societies were. And if you happen to be the second born son, there's a heck of a bright side to the killing of the first born son um, you get to inherit. So here's the problem. Uh, in the middle of, uh, I forget which uh, period of ancient Egyptian history, the inheritance law shifted 
from primogenitor to a uh, system in which the firstborn son inherited two portions for every one the other sons got. So it's still a nice upside if you're a secondborn son, uh, you get uh, you get the firstborn son's share, which is you know in a Jacob and Esau like way. This is the kind of thing people fought over back then. So I'm I'm uh, 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 the that was not the one that tripped me up. I, I came up with a bright side of boils too, um, which is what. But antibiotics. Oh, okay, fair enough. You know. Yeah. And, you know, the Nile turns to blood. We have a major blood shortage right now. Okay, By the we've way, if you're, talked about this. If you're this listening really, to this. This is, get, this is only if it is one type of blood and it's the blood is the universal donor O negative. Because but, if you mix up all the blood, it gets really, it's just gross. Okay. okay. To, to, to everyone listening to this. Imagine if the blood is full of pestilence, it strikes me that that is how you spread the pestilence. <laughs> right, so I left out pestilence because that's the plague we're experiencing. So yeah. I just left that one out altogether. But listen, if you're listening to this, go make an appointment to give blood. We have a serious blood shortage right now. And the Potomac River or the Hudson River or the, the Mississippi ain't turning to o, o negative blood. Charles. So like the Charles River, I mean, the Charles, you never know, but these other <laughs> rivers, it's not happening. And so go out and give blood, seriously, uh, like people need it. And, uh, you know, there's lots of people having all kinds of problems that aren't coronavirus and they need, and no one's giving blood right now because, you know, social distancing and all the red, you know, your local Red Cross chapter is accepting blood. Please go give blood. And I, that is a great PSA, but I'm going to now take the conversation for the last 10 to 15 minutes into kind of just some witty banter about what everyone's been doing and what their day-to-day -day life has been like and what's funny or not funny about like kind of what you've been going through. Um, you know, just kind of riff if you want. Um, I'm kind of curious, uh, Scott, you're in New York, right? All right. Yeah. You yeah, are like... Are you kind of like you are, I mean, I saw, oh, maybe I should share this in the, um, in the thing. I saw this really, it's actually, it's relevant to our discussion about, uh, about, um, about, uh, the Jews, uh, <laughs> um, uh, that we just had, uh, what about the Jews, the Jews. Exactly. I was like, yeah, I, I'm allowed to say that cause I'm part Jewish, uh, so, <laughs> somewhere. It's okay. It was, it was, it's accepted by all Jews present in the spirit with which it was meant. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. But this is, this was actually, I thought this was actually a pretty funny, it was like explaining to my friend, remember, if you remember the really terrible terrible um mel gibson movie about um like what is it um was like about christ do you yeah, remember is that the last yeah, temptation of christ no yes, no the passion of the christ no the last temptation is martin scorsese, scorsese movie. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. the passion of the christ does have one really important distinguishing feature which is that it is to my knowledge the only major motion picture movie ever released in the united states principally in aramaic Oh, really? Yeah. That's and it cool. was like, uh, uh, you know, finding uh, people who are capable of acting in Aramaic is not the easiest thing in the world. Okay, so yeah. this is the I, I used to read. I used to read Aramaic. Just want to say that. Really? Yeah, because it's in the You Talmud. got it to study Talmud. 
Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Okay. So this is the tweet. I'm just going to share it really quickly, which is the only thing that I think uh, you can take away good from this movie. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I thought it was a quite clever, uh, I thought it was a quite clever uh, screen grab. Um, but anyways, that was, um, I was just kind of thinking of funny things that had kind of like are coming out of this. My friends who have kids, I literally like this Ben is the reason that mystery guest is so hard for me is that like, I don't remember that I have to invite a mystery guest onto the show until like two hours before we're about to do the show. And then oh, I'm like, no. I just have to mentally go through my mind and like check off people that have young children yeah. that I would like ask to be on the show or would be interesting. And I'm like, you know, and like Scott, like I've had Scott on my list. Like he was at the top of the list. So it's easy. Like, but I was like, does Scott have young children? Will he no. be able to do this last minute? <laughs> like, <laughs> and there is like this kind of, this is like, I feel like this is the distinguishing thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, yeah I'll, I'll just, I, yeah, my, my kids, thank goodness, are, 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 are older. They're, they're here. Uh, they're 17, 20. So they're, they're autonomous agents, which is really good. Um, um, so can I, can I, can I say what, can I just talk for like two, three minutes about what it's like to be in New York? Totally, yeah. please. Okay, so um, so I I'm downtown, so like around Washington Square um, uh, Park area, and one of the things I think you know because it's you know New York's the epicenter, they say, but one of the things that I think people don't realize about New York in the time of plague, but at least in Manhattan and in downtown, it's kind of empty because. Um, my neighbors and, and people around have decided to leave and infect everyone else in the tri-state area. Um, and so there are not that many people um, on the street. And um, I was actually- Have they all decamped to their vacation house? I mean, what are we talking about here? Y yeah, exactly. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I'm like, that person. Yeah, yeah, Connecticut to um, you know Long Island, various things. Um, Wait, Kate, where are you? I'm in Cape can... Cod. Uh, I mean, ooh. I'm my family isn't from my family is not from New York City. My parents are state government officials, as I've mentioned many times in this on this show. They're judge like state judges and they bought land and built a house and then rented it for like 15, 20 years in order to pay for it. And like, so it's not like the like it's not like the same thing as the Manhattan kind of like buying a house, like whatever in the Hamptons, like type of thing. Um, but nonetheless, I have a house that my parents like built in the mid 1980s in Cape Cod that was empty that like I my partner and I were in a 200 square foot studio apartment ah, uh, in, in Brooklyn ah. yeah I mean we've lived there with a free range turtle and a blind dog for like 10 like 10 years and like <laughs> this was like the one point where we were like we need to leave this is yeah. like I, I, will, I will just tell you it's that the is the blindness that breaks that sentence perfect. I'm sorry. That is, that, <laughs> the the that, blind dog can't see how small the apartment is. She just go. goes around in circles. A happy dog. <laughs> yeah. That that is not the case for many people around here. I mean, they 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 have very spacious apartments. I, I do not have a spacious apartment, but thank God. I mean, I'm not complaining. But I will just tell one thing, which happens. It's very. Um, uh, it actually was so um, touching and sad. I was walking to get sushi because the people that don't deliver um, and I was walking up to 28th Street and I was walking up 9th Avenue um, and at seven o'clock everyone claps 
and um, uh, further uptown, there are a lot more people than there are downtown, and there are lots of high rises, and everyone came out onto the balcony, and they weren't just clapping, cheering, but they took out pots, and they were banging on it, and it was very, it was very touching, but then an ambulance came down the street and drove slowly and started waving from from the window to all the people cheering and i have to say i just i i i got really uh i was really touching really emotional it was really it i i was also in new york during 9 11 and it had that same kind of um bonding together of humanity yeah yeah um for first responders and for people who were literally putting their lives on the line for us. And actually I feel kind of choked up right now. It was, it was really, um, it was really a beautiful moment. Uh, but then, but then, but then when it starts to get dark. New I hope York, we're starting with a profanity soon. Let's keep going. No, no, no. When it starts to get dark, it's, it's really scary in New York because there are many vulnerable populations in New York. There are people who are homeless. There are the jails, you know, I mean, thank goodness um, they're relieving um, um, a lot of the um, um, isolation and the, the, the petri dishes that jails have become um, in New York. But a lot of these people have nowhere to go and they're walking around the street. And normally when there are other people, they're diluted, but then you see them and there are no police really. Um, and it's, it's like an escape from New York. I mean, it's a very, it's, and we don't go out after dark anymore because it's just too scary. Um, and so New York is a it's a it's a sad, scary place at night. But at least at seven p.m. there was a moment of grace. Hmm. Wow, hot stuff in Boston, Dan. Yeah. Well, I guess the answer. So to be fair, I don't live in Boston proper. I live in a what's an inner rig suburb of Boston, and. Um, I have to confess that, that that here at least it's been a little more uplifting. Um, there hasn't been the the downside of of things getting scary after dark. Um, the thing I've been impressed by is the degree to which two things. I, I went to, I actually went shopping today, which might be the last time I do that, uh, given that we're supposed to hit our peak um, at least in Massachusetts, I believe on April seventh or something, or you know between April tenth and and. April 20th. So, you know, that might be the, the worst time to go out. But what I was impressed by was the degree to which everyone here pretty much gets it, for lack of a better way of putting it. You know, the we, we to go into the supermarket, we had to wait in line, you know, because they wanted to limit it to only 20, uh, 30 people in the store at the same time. Um, I'm also impressed that, that everyone in, Mass, in in the Boston area apparently has a reserve of surgical masks or masks, like not not homemade bandanas, but actual masks. Yeah, but uh, but Dan, can I ask if that's yeah. like like I always think of like Boston as like the quintessential med ed yes economy. No, that's exactly what it. So the story I always tell about this is I, um, back in the fall, um, I was on a flight back from San Francisco to Boston uh, with my with my son. We were we had gone to a family uh, bat mitzvah. And we were coming back. We were sitting about middle of the plane. And then suddenly someone is walking like literally right next to me and suddenly all the color drains from their face and he passes out, you know? So this obviously causes a fair commotion and the, the flight attendant immediately comes and there's a question, someone immediately within like 30 seconds goes on the PA and says, um, if anyone is a medical profet, you know, like a, a doctor, could you please raise your hand? We have a, a problem. And literally in the, <laughs> in the, 
five aisles. I'm a doctor, in, right. a doctor of law, of which there are five. I, I did, I, so I did not raise my hand. You know, me, I think I actually said medical doctor to be fair. But in the five rows in front of me and in the five rows behind me, at least 15 people raised their hands, you know, which and I was like, oh, right, I'm flying back to Boston. <laughs> yeah, this is, so, you know, like there are a lot. Yes, it, it, I, th I think the point being there are a lot of people here that are medical professionals. Um, and so it doesn't stun me that that people have these, uh, you know, these sort of reserves at home. I mean, I have, uh, as it turns out, surgical masks because about seven or eight years ago, I had to go to Beijing. And of course, you were at the time told to bring those because of the smog um, that you would have there. But but I've been you know, pleasantly surprised at, so far, at least, and again, this is the suburbs, with the degree to which people have been looking after their neighbors, the people to which people, you know, degree to which people have been looking after more vulnerable populations, you know, older people or what have you. Um, now, we're still in the early stages of this, and we'll see how this goes. Um, but, but that said, you know, by and large, people have adjusted. And this is actually an argument I made in, you know, hold on, I'll promote this, what the hell this book, um, Theories of International right. Politics and Zombies. And one of the arguments I made in the book is that the zombie genre and the zombie canon is too pessimistic about humanity. Um, that human beings- Oh are my God, this is why I stopped like reading, like I read all of Walking Dead. No, I, no, like, no, no, no. And then like, you're just kind of like, fuck you. This is yeah. terrible. Like no, everything get... is just continuing to be awful and there's never going to be a recovery of any meaningful kind. Right, no, I, re I read like the first couple of years of The Walking Dead and then I also watched the first six seasons of the show. And after the after Negan came on the scene, I'm like, fuck you. I I've had enough of this. You know, it's it's just, you know, the, the, the interesting parts in the beginning were the debate between Rick and Shane as to whether or not it was possible to be uh, you know, to, to, to carve out a good society in a harsh world, or are we living in a Hobbesian war of all against all? And it turns out Shane won, even if he died, and that that is the only message the show has. Um, and so it was, it ceased to be important. But in actual society, it turns out that human beings are a little more adaptable and a little more cooperative. You know, we're we're awesome. We invented duct tape for Christ's sake. So, you know, I, I, I'm actually relatively confident that as bad as Yeah, this but is, we can't spell it with any consistency. Fair enough. But like, <laughs> my, my point being, you know, while there are bad people out there and while there are circumstances under which people are often forced to act in a purely self-interested uh, way, we are not even remotely there yet. And I am, I am warmed, I, I'm cheered by the fact that frankly, most Americans and frankly, most people across the world have have recognized, oh, okay, we need to do social distancing, not because I myself might die, but because I want to protect other people from dying. I, by acting, you know, according to these rules and not necessarily just saving myself, I'm trying to save the most vulnerable parts of the population. And that is legitimately contributing to the public good. And as the small L liberal that I am, I do find that heartwarming. All right, we have a question uh, from John Bordeaux, who says he actually prefers not to be on camera, um, uh, but he says the task force is telegraphing pretty clearly now that the next week or so will be horrific. My sense is that this means that most Americans will know a victim all at once. How do you interpret the odd change of tone as of yesterday? And, uh, and I'm gonna add to that, and how do you think it changes things assuming John is right and that the average person suddenly is touched by this immediately. Scott, what's your instinct about this? 
I mean, I, 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 I think that, um, you know, I, if you're running the presidential campaign of, of the incumbent, I think it's like, from a political perspective, it's the apocalypse. You know, I don't, I, I just saw the, the Fed, the, uh, the, the Fed, uh, the president of the Fed of St. Louis um, um, branch um, said that he, they predict 10 to 42, a range between 10 and 42% unemployment with 32% unemployment being the, um, the, the compromise middle. I mean, I don't know how, how you can run a campaign at, uh, to be at, as the incumbent under such a condition. And certainly you can't uh, poo poo it away in the way that uh, the administration had been doing up until a while ago. So, I mean, I think, I think this, from a political perspective, I think this is, uh, um, you know, the, the, the nightmare scenario. What do you think, Dan? So I, this is hard for me to talk about. First of all, I mean, I strongly suspect my brother got, you know, had this. Uh, my sister-in-law also probably had this. We're not entirely sure because they live in Colorado. There was a shortage of tests when it was really acute for them. Um, and so hopefully there will be an antibodies test where they can determine whether or not they actually had it. Uh, but the fact that they had to go to the emergency room because my, my sister-in-law had difficulty breathing um, suggests that, that it was pretty damn serious. Um, and there are also other people I know that, that have had it. Uh, Adam Schlesinger, who has uh, passed away um, uh, this week, uh, he was a well-known songwriter. He wrote the, he was, part, he was one of the songwriters for Fountains of Wayne. Um, and he wrote the, uh, the eponymous song for That Thing You Do. He was a year ahead of me uh, at Williams. And so um, that hit me weird, really hard as well, even though I didn't know him terribly well. Um, but you know, the, 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 the way I would put it is that I, I, my unfortunate concern is that it's not actually going to change all that much. Um, that what winds up happening essentially is that people who know people who have died, um, if they support the president will rationalize that by saying, well, you know, these things happen. And now it, it now among now, if, it, if at any time we need to come together, much like we did in a post 9-11 moment, and why can't the liberal media, you know, really, uh, you know, get behind that and, and ask nicer questions. And the people who don't like Trump are simply going to dislike Trump even more. Um, you know, I, I wrote something in the post last week, I think, or the week before last, where, you know, my, my greatest fear at this point is not dying. My greatest fear at this point is going a day where I'm is never there never being a day where I'm not angry um, at what's happened. Mm. Fair enough. That's a that's a it's a very pointed uh, and poignant comment. Uh, Kevin R has a has a question. Kevin, thanks for joining us. What are your thoughts? Um, yeah. Well, in the discussion of what foot traffic was like in the various cities, I was reflecting that what I'm seeing in Chicago has struck me as very much being sort of the day after a massive blizzard type mm. type level of, yeah, the, there's a lot fewer people on the street, but there still are some out there. You'll, you'll you know, see somebody every 
you know, a couple of people every block kind of thing. Um, I'm in River North, just north of the loop. Um, but what I what had caught my eye or what what caught my attention was a comment on uh, the the homeless crowds. And at least around here, we're seeing the about the same number of homeless, maybe even a few less. But what what's caught my attention is it's none of our usual ones. It's it's a different set of uh, homeless people. So and what do you what do you, what do you what do you attribute that to? Um, I, I wonder if it may be that the city has set up uh, good shelters or alternatively that the ones that we, that the, at least where I am, we don't have, we're, we're more of a touristy type area. So we don't actually have encampments here. They're, they're a mile or so away in a couple different directions. And I haven't been over there to see what those look like. But at least in terms of the the usual crowd of people, you know, begging for uh, whatever handout, um, though, and the ones who are selling the local magazine and things like that, those folks are all off the street. And so I don't know whether that means that they they have have shelters that they're normally in, or whether the city has done a better job of opening up shelters and trying to keep people keep people in a good place you saw the the you saw the the um nevada i think las vegas um there was a las vegas nevada um like picture that was going around of a of a parking lot that had been cordoned into six foot areas in which homeless people were supposed to cordon themselves. This was all while hotels were actively like completely vacant because of the lack of tourism that had occurred. And people were like, yes, let's like let people sleep in these, like kind of on these, like in these six foot partitions in a parking lot, we're going to spray paint these versus, um, versus letting them live in a hotel or something. I don't like, I don't know, like I teach property law and like land use. And I'm also just like generally like a not terrible person. And I would like people to be able to, if they want to have like a home over their heads and like whatever else. But I would say that like a lot of people who work on homelessness issues uh, specifically mention that it's not always or often about a lack of resources. It's often about mental health issues. Um, and lack of kind of, he- of like healthcare around those things. And that is actually the least thing that I think that we can give people right now, given where we're healthcare providers, what our healthcare right. providers are doing. Um, and so like, I, you know, I, I just like, I have such mixed, I, not mixed. Um, I just have such like tragic feelings about like the homelessness situation that's happening at the, like right now. I don't know. Do you guys have anything else to pitch in? I would say one thing, which is what is so awful is that when the homeless people come up to you and asking you for things, <laughs> you get back off like they're, I mean, because you're, social distancing. Right. Um, and it's just, you feel awful. You feel, um, you feel like a terrible person. If it makes you feel better, Scott, there is a pretty like well-studied 
like social psychology mechanism for this, which I think that all people should employ all the time, which is like the, like people generally report if they're like everything from doing like political activism on the street to like being homeless is like people ignore them and that being the worst part. And so acknowledging them Uh and saying hello and saying, I'm sorry, but I cannot is actually like, is actually a huge, like that's all they need. They're just like, I'm sorry, sir. I have no cash. Or I'm sorry, sir. I can't give to you today. Or like, I'm sorry, ma'am. And like doing that makes a huge difference and is like far less dismissive and like recognizes their personhood and like their, you know, and everything they're going through. That's an excellent uh, piece of advice. Thank you. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, go ahead, Ben. Sorry. Sorry. Uh, We uh, have Vishnu uh, Kanan uh, from uh, Michigan. Vishnu, uh, what's on your mind? Hey, I'm back. Um, so this is a question for, sorry, it's a bit of a pivot, but it's a question for all of you since you all write uh, in some capacity or another for a living. Uh, how dramatically have you had to diverge from your routine to stay productive as you're kind of trapped inside? And if you have had to diverge, what's, what's the new routine? I, can I answer that first? Yeah, let's just go down the line. Uh, 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 Dan. Yeah, my answer is I'm not productive. Um, you know, and so the, the the notion that somehow, you know, by not having to commute anywhere and by essentially, be, you know, I, I'm relatively privileged. I'm saying this from my home office. So I have a, a space where I can continue to teach, you know, via Zoom and I can continue to do uh, my work, which is what I used to do, you know, when before, um, uh, you know, half the time I would be uh, doing work from home. Um, the, this particular crisis, however, has completely consumed my brain to the point where I am able to do the bare minimum of what I am supposed to do. I can teach still. I can teach the courses that I am supposed to. Uh, I can write the columns that I'm supposed to for the post. Beyond that, I have not done much. Um, it has been extremely hard to focus. I'm not sleeping terribly well. Uh, I find myself distracted and and absent-minded in a way that I cannot recall since the time that I had toddlers um, and and newborns when I was not sleeping, uh, you know, nearly that well and and trying to react to it. So I I do give kudos to those uh, of you out there who are able to be productive in in this particular time. Uh, I am not one of those people. Scott, what about you? Are you being productive? No. Um, uh, Just look at my Twitter feed. Um, I have to say that um, uh, I, I, I can't hear things like what Dan said enough, because I feel like I am wasting an opportunity, though what opportunity one can have for writing and being productive during the apocalypse is really um, not clear. But I am really, um, if, I, if I get in uh, two hours of writing a day. I mean, that I'm like, but I'm not even really good two hours. I mean, really distracted two hours. Um, I feel really lucky. I just feel like on the one hand, I'm blowing this golden opportunity uh, just to write. Though I'm also teaching classes. And but stuff it's like not that. a golden opportunity. It's a freaking disaster. And that, I, I think I any way to, 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 to describe this as a golden opportunity, I think even to dismiss it is, is, 
is not just wrong, it's actually extremely counterproductive because it presents the idea that somehow we should be seizing the opportunity of the fact that we're housebound to continue to do work without recognizing what is fundamentally a national trauma that we will be telling our grandchildren about. No, I, so I, 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 that's of course right. And again, please keep on saying that because, um, but like, you know, we're, we're, you know, if you're, if you're, there's a, um, there's a great uh, expression that Stephen King had, which is, uh, which he, when he said, um, amateurs wait for inspiration, professionals write. Yeah, um, that's fair. And so like you just, you, it's kind of ingrained in us. We write, we, that's what we do. And it doesn't matter if you're messed up, you just write. And, um, but you're right. There's a way in which it's somehow morally, morally, bizarre to be able to be focused. The way I would put it is that they're, so, you know, as someone who writes for a public audience, but also someone who tries to write for a scholarly audience, it's there. One of the problems that I think my academic colleagues occasionally suffer from, and I talked about this in, in the ideas industry, is they equate all words equally, or they treat all words equally. The, the belief that if you are writing an article for the American Political Science Review or the American Journal of International Law or what have you, that's the same thing as if you're writing for foreign affairs or if you're writing for the Washington Post or if you're writing a tweet. And that's just bullshit. There's, there's no other way to put that. Um, these are very different kinds and different styles of writing. Um, you know, the kind of writing that I have to do where I'm trying to get something through peer review is, you know, agonizing is not quite the word, but it takes the ratio of effort to words on the page is much greater. Um, now, I've been fortunate that I've been I've written long enough for a public audience and I've written for the Post now for six years so that I, I, I can do that with a with less, um, you know, the effort to word ratio is much lower. Um, and so that that's fair, and it, and it goes to your point about professionals, right? Um, but there are different kinds of writing, and I think you know, for the kind of writing where you're trying to, you know, do original research or make an original, you know, argument at length with 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 theory and evidence and considering the counterfactuals and so on and so forth, that is a kind of writing that that some probably can do now, and I am not one of those people. So Dan, I'm gonna. Sorry, Scott. Like, did you? No, want I wanted to ask. I wanted to ask you, Kate, about like because you were you you've just emerged from this writing hell. So Scott um, knows about this because oh. at, Scott knows about this because like a week ago, oh, two weeks ago, like I was frantic. We like Scott and I had a number of like frantic phone calls in which I would over text message ask him these insanely broad philosophical questions and I'm like can you give me a citation to like the rule of law like, or something like isn't that isn't that the classic Orrin Kerr don't you don't I mean going back to Orrin Kerr isn't this the classic Orrin Kerr citation yeah, yeah I mean like yeah. that's what that's what Scott gave me yes so, <laughs> so. a theory of law that's it it's a theory yeah, of law that's what that's the name um, is yes but I just want to say that like, so like we have these conversations, but like, and Ben knows the story because I've talked about this and it, it it is literally so like, it's very funny because it's not funny, but like, it is like this interesting thing that has happened. So about 24 days ago, 25 or six days ago, I think it was like that first week in March when everyone was taking this seriously in New York for the first time, my partner and I were looking at each other and we were like, we got to get the hell out of here. And like, we were trying to figure out when to do it. And finally we decided like when one of his, the people in his office had been like diagnosed 
that we were going to get out and we we're going to go to like that this was going to be serious and we were going to go to yeah. to Cape Cod and so we left and we sequestered I want to also say that we like literally have not done anything except grocery shop like since we've been here like like even if we're carriers in some way even though we've had no exposure like we just have tried to be really responsible about it but like anyways we got here for two days our dog got really sick and we had to go to the emergency vet and like then again and then again and it was like six days of complete panic and then as I'm coming out of that panic uh there was a message from the Yale Law Journal that basically was like, hey, your paper that you haven't finished writing and which we have 25,000 words of, but we need the final part of, which is basically like 50,000 words. Like <laughs> we need, we need like that. I'm we sorry. need that like on deadline. Oh, and the deadline is two days from now. We're still holding you to this deadline. And so I literally like my dog, I think my dog is dying. Like there's a pandemic, there's everything. I sit down in the spot. You can't see it because MASH is behind me, but like in, the spot, in this hard- It was very disturbing earlier watching you like dive into Mike Farrell's chest to get a drink or something. <laughs> yes, and like, and I just kind of sit down and I'm like, I run 20 hour days. Like literally I sleep for four hours at a time for five days and I try to finish up writing the remainder the remainder of the piece is like 60,000 words it gets shipped off at Tuesday three days after deadline I communicated the whole thing like in between I was like okay we're not going to quite make deadline but here you go hmm. and like it was such a tremendous moment of productivity but when I emerged and like finally got over and also by the way was still teaching in all of these moments. So I was like carving oh. out time to like teach myself co-tenancy and landlord tenant law, like reteach it to myself and then teach it to other people and help all of my students through like getting evicted and all their of their own adjustments, right. students die, like parents dying, all of this stuff. I was like, I put this thing out and I was like, great. And like two days later, I kind of slept a lot. And then I was like, okay. And I was like, oh, it's been two weeks since we left New York. What's going on with the pandemic? <laughs> it was like, it was literally like that was what the trade-off was. Like I like it forced me to not deal with this at all. Like I didn't look at anything. Like a I'm a little jealous, frankly, but yes, yeah. Yeah, it was like, and I, I like kind of came out and I was like, oh God. And now, now I can't sleep through the night. And not yeah. because I'm writing a freaking paper but because this is crazy mm -hmm. and I literally fall asleep thinking about the end of social order and the social contract and like that this is just never going to recover from that what about Sorry. Ben Ben do you are you <laughs> I mean you have to be productive I mean you, you you know you have to get the trains to run how, how are you been dealing with this so the irony is I just finished teaching a class at HLS this fall which I was teaching for the first time in which the premise of it was very similar to the, it was like a class about how to do legal writing for non-specialist audiences and specifically how to, how to do it well, predictably and without being caught up in writer's block and how to be just, it's very similar to the Stephen King ethos that uh, uh, one of you described that like, you know, this is your job just treat it like, like you're a general contractor and 
you know, this isn't a great work of art that you're producing. It's just what you churn out every day. So I'm experiencing, so I'm, I have not gone through what Kate has gone through, which is to force myself into a, you know, intense period of productivity, which is actually pretty extraordinary to do that in this period of time. I mean, um, the ultimate, the, like, I mean, it's driven by fear, right? <laughs> of course, and it's also driven my, by necessity. Like, I'm a junior academic and I'm terrified that like Yale is going, Yale Law Journal is going to like pull their acceptance of this, like this perspective piece from me because I don't know. Oh, so yeah, like there is like, it's mindset. driven by a huge amount of fear. Like I'm not like Dan and Scott where I have tenure. So like. Right. Yeah. And, and, but look, I think if Dan and Scott had a deadline on a big piece, they would force themselves to do it and to make it. Um, the, I, I, I accept that that's an accentuating factor, but I think the biggest factor is, you know, Yale Law Journal called you and said, no, we're not negotiating about the deadline, get it done. So you forced yourself to get it done. Everything I've had to get done, I've gotten done. I haven't had an imaginative thought. I haven't had a big idea. I haven't had a medium-sized idea. I've been extremely effective at running lawfare um, and at the things that I need to do, including writing some stuff. Uh, I'm, I'm a professional writer. If I have to write something, I write something. Um, but I, I would urge everybody out there who's feeling like, this is a great opportunity to be, you know, to have a period of productivity. Uh, very few people are productive in the throes of a cataclysm. Normally the productivity comes after it. When you, like, this is the time you're experiencing something and you're, there, there are, you know, great works that are produced midstream that are kind of like, you know, the, the uh, I mean, the, the most extreme example of it is like the, the you know, prison diaries of, uh, uh, you know, of, of a whole bunch of people, but everybody from- Let's uh, just say one from, day in the life of Ivan Denisovich, yeah. Sure, right. I mean, like you can, you can come up with examples of it. Um, and, but, but most of the time, there are periods where we experience things and there are periods where we process them productively and they're not the same periods. And particularly something that's as shocking and as disruptive to the way we live as this, it's completely unreasonable to expect yourself and to beat yourself up and feel guilty about not having like this not being the period where you like Isaac Newton, you know, come up with this, like calculus. I hate that guy. Um, <laughs> that guy man you know i mean seriously he you also know, by the way and also newton got the goddamn gold standard wrong i you know the reason can we oh my gosh dan yeah. can we have it ben dan can we have an entire show that is about how people are famous while also being wrong and so this is like like what is it like what is lewick's like kind of evolutionary theory where he cut the tails oh, off of mice and thought lamarck that, like, lamarck lamarckian Lamar Lamar genetics yeah yes yeah. markian genetics the idea of like they're like what would it be like to be that dude who is famous for literally thousands of years and hundreds of years for getting it fucking wrong yeah. versus like on, on that cheerful note because remember you could be <laughs> using this period scott shapiro to be producing a magnum opus that is spectacularly wrong and that would have you infamous 
for the next several hundred years so that, so that the name Shapiro, like the name Lamarck, uh, would be synonymous with being spectacularly wrong about something. So look at the bright side that, you know, non-productivity is way better than productivity in, in, the, in, the, in the depths of wrongness. Yeah, Kepler um, was like a heliocentric model. Let's just remind ourselves. You had me until the, the, that means that I'm not going to be famous for a couple hundred years. <laughs> no, I didn't. I, I, I just said, the, the, like, it's be, the best model here is you're not productive right now. It's okay. You'll, you'll process this. And, uh, and then in two years time, you'll write something actually important and write about so that, the experience now. I've said, this I've said this before. Very wise. I've said this before, which is I, I, this is even before the coronavirus. I, I'm looking forward to you know the ideally I want just enough fame so that 20 years from now I'm on a History Channel documentary <laughs> in which people interview me and I say, yeah, he thought he could buy Greenland. That actually happened. <laughs> that that you know that's the that's, perfect. That's note my on, goal. That's yeah. the perfect note on which to close. Uh, by then. The History Channel will be done on Zoom conference, <laughs> and we'll all be living in those matrix pods, um, and we won't even have a real existence. But or the Love Is we'll, Blind pods. That sounds much nicer. We're laughing, you, but I actually don't think that that's like so far from the truth. <laughs> like that. That's like, can you? Can't you imagine like live, live reenactment? Like like of Zoom, like catching the live reenactment. Uh, they will I, feed you Soylent to keep you going in your pod. Um, but uh, I think we need to wrap up. We've had a lot yeah. of fun in lieu of fun. Yeah, I, 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 this, this is really completely um, a misnamed uh, show because I really haven't laughed and smiled uh, for a couple of weeks. And so I really want to thank you guys. Oh, well, thank you great. for doing it. And thank the, you, Dan. In the immortal and, words of Keanu Reeves, <laughs> <laughs> on that note uh, we'll be back we will be back tomorrow at five o'clock hey who do we have tomorrow oh no tomorrow we're at six o'clock right oh yeah tomorrow we're at six o'clock because i have to teach a class at yale law school with jack balkan uh but then we're going to be having nate persley and alex demos on to talk about democracy and elections uh, which will be a really great selection of people to talk nope. about, like what's going on with. It'll be less funny than today. Information in the small world universe. Nate is very good friends with my uh, was very good friends with my wife uh, when they were like little. So. Oh really? Oh. Yes. He's such a. He's like one of my favorite people. There you I go. Really we'll say hi Nate. to him for me and say hi to Jack as well. Yeah. Will do. Uh, so six o'clock tomorrow, we will uh, post the link on Twitter. And remember, if you can't have fun in lieu of fun, uh, there's us. Uh, Kate, <laughs> see you scotch. tomorrow. Okay. And Bye, scotch. everyone. Bye-bye. Thank Bye. you.